2 Corinthians chapter 3, let's begin in verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendations from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not by the letter, but of the Spirit, for this letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. We're so grateful for your body. We thank you for the family that we are, and we get to love one another and be there for one another. Lord, we're so thankful that we're going to be with each other for all eternity with new bodies, Lord, worshiping you, gathered around your throne, and and just being able to enjoy you among one another, Lord. We're so thankful for that. We just pray for a supernatural work of your Holy Spirit this morning as we study your word. We're thankful, Lord, that it's, it's alive, it's, it's active, it's um, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're so grateful, Father, that um, it's, it's what we need every time we look into your word. And we're grateful it doesn't change. We're so grateful, Lord, that is far beyond anything we could have ever written ourselves. It's something that's supernatural. Jesus said your word is, your, is, is spirit and life, Lord, and we're so grateful, Lord, for your words. So we, we want to be demonstrating that we're your disciples by continuing in your word. We pray your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We have one or two weeks left in this series on Calvary Chapel Distinctives, and we've looked at many different topics. They explain what why we do what we do, or our philosophy of ministry, or what values we hold to dearly. We're not the only ones that hold these values. They're just ones that we um, are very thankful for. Pastor Chuck wrote a book called Calvary Chapel Distinctives. Most of this has been taken, borrowed, okay, stolen. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But just the foundation from which uh, these topical messages and teachings have been, or, or that's where they come from. And Pastor Chuck made it very clear that we don't, ha- we don't have the corner on truth, but we are thankful for what we hold and what we value as clear teaching from Scripture. So we've looked at calling as everything. We've looked at it's Jesus' church, let him build it. We've looked at the priority of the word, about going through the Bible verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, all the way through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, the value of that. The importance of being empowered by the Holy Spirit, that, that we can be empowered to be witnesses to Jesus, that we don't automatically have all the boldness that we need, and that sometimes we need God to give us that power to be a witness to him, 
We need to be refilled with the Spirit. Also, we looked at the gifts of the Spirit for today and that they need to be exercised biblically, decently, and in order. And there's a lot of misconceptions about the gifts of the Spirit. Either they believe or teach that they're not for today or anything goes and if it feels right and if it seems real, then it must be legitimate. And before you know it, there's people swinging from chandeliers and um, trapeze uh, in the sanctuary. I mean, all kinds of dancing poodles, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. We're all attributing this craziness to the Holy Spirit that looks nothing like Jesus. The Spirit of, of God is referred to as the Spirit of Christ, but yet we didn't see Christ do any of these things, practice any of these things, teach any of these things, and just craziness that where I'm out of control and I have, you know, and when the fruit of the Spirit self-control. And, and so there's so many things that, you know, the Word of God protects us. The Holy Spirit's gifts are not going to go outside the boundaries of the Word of God that he inspired. And, and there's a protection in that. Also, we looked at grace upon grace, that the body of Christ has to be a place of people being gracious to other people. We have to have a, a place and an environment where we can fail, we can make mistakes, we can be works in progress, we can uh, you know, not live up to the standard and, and still be loved and still uh, have people extend grace to us and all of those things. That's a Calvary Chapel distinctive. It's the, the movement started by reaching out to hippies and, and being gracious towards them, not focusing on the outward appearance, but focusing on the heart, giving God a chance to change the person from the inside out. And, and Pastor Chuck let people share their songs and, and all these things, and they, one of them was, had to wait to get out of jail because he had to serve a sentence or whatever. I mean, it's not like that's the model for, you know, all of our worship leaders. They have to go to jail or they have to, you know, like we're searching for people that are locked up. But the point is, is that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. And, and he is patient with us. And, and a lot of times the things that we focus on, especially in light of in other people's lives, unfortunately, we're focused on them instead of our own walk. That we're, we're thinking that God wants to take out these first seven or eight things from their life. But he's, God's working on a totally different list than we are. And his priorities may be different, and we have to be gracious with people. Last week, we looked at the supremacy of love. How without love coming from our ministries, coming through our lives, that everything that we're doing is a waste of time as far as God's concerned. That God is love. And the only explanation for the creation of man and how he works in, in, in the lives of people and the, ex, the explanation of the gospel and how the church functions all can be summarized in one word, and that word is love. And so we have to have love, which means that if this is a place of a, you know, a gracious environment and it's loving, that means that when people fall, we have to, we're going to take criticism for loving them and caring for them when other people think that we should just discard them or reject them. And God says, no, I don't, I don't want that. I, love covers a multitude of sins. Aren't we glad that God has, is slow to wrath with us? And aren't, aren't we glad that he's patient and loving and extends grace to us when we make mistakes? So we have to have the same standard related to being um, gracious and loving towards other people. So that's plenty of weeks of different things, and I want to remind you, you can go on our website or our church app, you can go through and go through them if you miss some of those. They're very important for understanding kind of what we're about and all of those things. But today we're going to look at something called, and Pastor Chuck used to call, talk about this all the time. I remember in class he would talk about it probably once a month. 
He would talk about having begun in the Spirit. And he would talk about we, if we've begun in the Spirit, then are we going to be made perfect in the flesh? And he'd quote Galatians 3, which we'll get to. But he would talk about the importance of starting in the Spirit, of course, but then continuing in the Spirit and finishing or being faithful or enduring and overcoming all the way to the end of our pilgrimage and our, our walk related to this life faithfully and by his spirit and not take over things um, in our, the power of our own strength or, or human effort. He always used to talk about look at church history as an example of how not to be in many ways. Because when you study revivals, you study awakenings, you study works of the Spirit, you typically focus on how they begin. How do these things begin? When you hear about these great works of the Spirit, uh, how do they start? They start by somebody seeking God. They start by somebody seeking Him, and then they start praying and maybe even fasting, and then he tells them to do something. We see that all through Scripture. He tells somebody, you need to go do this. He tells them to do something, and often they feel ill-equipped. All of us feel ill-equipped. He's never asked me to do something that I felt equipped for. Uh, and so that we see that in Scripture with Moses and Gideon. And we go down the example, just example after example of people that did feel like they were, he was asking them to do something you know, way over their head. Which is true. They're not the, the right person from a worldly sense. But from a biblical sense... He chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He reveals things to the simple. He does things through weak vessels like us so that when he does a work of the Holy Spirit, he gets the glory and we don't. So they don't say, oh, it was just because that person's so brilliant. Now, that person was, you know, a former breakdancer. Of course, you know, that makes sense. You know, that's not true. That's definitely not true. Um, but he, he, when he does this mighty work... He always births that by the Holy Spirit. It's clearly God that did it. He started it, all these things. And so um, a work of the Spirit begins um, supernaturally. And, and, but the problem is, um, we, over time, things begin to change. In the beginning, we're totally dependent upon the Lord. I mean, we're just like holding on. By, for dear life, you know, when you first start walking, you know, and you're a little baby, you know, you start, you're holding on and you're, you know, you're, you're like shaking because you're holding on so tight to the, to the legs of the coffee table, you know, trying to walk or your parents' hands or whatever. You're desperate to, because you know that you just, you're on shaky ground and you can't really do it in your own strength. And then after a while you start walking and then you think, well, I don't need any help or whatever. And then boom, you fall on your behind, you know, and your diaper pads you a little bit. My daughter told me, when I went to spank her once, when she was little, she said, Dad, that doesn't hurt anymore because of my diaper. I'm like, okay, we'll just take your diaper off. <laughs> Didn't think that was even possible. Um, I'm like, thanks for letting me know that. But in the beginning, you're dependent upon everything, and, and, and just you're just totally just uh, at his mercy, and you, and you know that. And we're always at his mercy, but we can forget that we're always at his, at his mercy. So how the, how the work of the Spirit, a work of the Spirit begins, is completely different sometimes of how it continues or how it ends especially. And what threatens a work of the Holy Spirit? There's a lot of things that can threaten a work of the Holy Spirit. A legitimate work of the Holy Spirit can be threatened 
or killed, you can say it that way. What can kill a work of the Spirit? Well, we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, that we can quench the Spirit. We're told not to quench the Spirit. We're also told in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we're told not to grieve the Spirit. So what does that? What, what grieves the Holy Spirit? What quenches the Holy Spirit? It happens through disobedience, willful disobedience. It happens through pride. It happens through self-dependence. And it happens, to, uh, happens by refusing to be led by the Spirit anymore. If you look at any work of the Spirit in the past... It always starts the same way. It starts by somebody seeking God or God sovereignly moving on somebody and they start seeking God and they start having dependence upon the Lord and they start doing something for him that that God has ordained and he has birthed and all these things. And when you look at a lot of the great men and women of God, you know, like you think of, and Pastor Chuck uses this example of John Wesley or Martin Luther. We know we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing those 30, there's not 35, 95, he's better than 35, 95 theses to um, the castle church in Wittenberg. And he was basically um, saying his protest, that's where Protestant comes from, his protest to the Catholic church receiving indulgences or money to get people out of purgatory and also talking about the importance of going to scripture alone. And when we go to scripture alone, we can see that we can't earn our way to heaven, that it's a free gift that one receives. Well, what was the result of those men? What what movements or denominations or churches started? The Methodist church started as a result of John Wesley. And much of that church today, sadly, is not the same. uh, It's so much tradition and so many things that are that are against scripture. Not all, of course. There's always going to be a remnant. But it's completely different than it was when all of that started. Same with Martin Luther and then the Lutheran church of what it's become and and all these things. And and so I think of our movement, the Calvary Chapel movement. I remember Pastor Chuck warning us about having self-dependence creep in. Warned us about using worldly strategies and, and things that are not of the spirit, that are not um, biblical. And he always encourages us to be desperate for God. And it's, it's at Jesus' church. And once we think we're smarter than what he says in his word, we're doomed for, for failure. And that's what Pastor Chuck learned by failing for 17 years. Not, a lot of people don't know this, but Pastor Chuck was a minister in another denomination for 17 years before the Calvary Chapel movement started. And he'll, he said over and over again that it was... I had to learn the hard way. All these things that I had to learn that weren't right or weren't the right way. I wasn't teaching the Bible. I was doing evangelistic messages to believers who are already saved. Beating the sheep. Shaming them and and beating them. (laughs) Condemning them for not winning the lost and all of those things. And he would run out of sermons after three years and have to go to another church. Take another pastorate because he ran out of messages and, you know, he had to get other jobs and all these things because these churches weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing and all of that. And, and so he warned against that. You know, sometimes I look at the, you know, the Calvary Chapel Bible College and I look at the people that are teaching in that and all the degrees behind their names and all that. And I think of Pastor Chuck saying when Raul Reese and Mike McIntosh and these other leaders in the Calvary Chapel movement went and got their higher degrees and Pastor Chuck rebuked them. 
And he's not saying it's not wrong to get education, but what did these things add to your ministry? You had very successful, fruitful ministries. What did this add? Are you wanting worldly status? Are you wanting to be respected by the rest of the leaders in the body of Christ? What is it? What did it add to your ministry? It didn't add anything to their ministry. And so we have to be very, very careful of those things in our movement in our personal lives. Now, let's look at one of our first passage here in verse 1. It says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? See, this is how it worked back then. And it happens kind of a lot in our circles today. People would get letters of recommendation because nobody knew each other. And these leaders would come and travel different parts of the body of Christ. And they would say, these guys have written me these papers that say that I'm qualified and I'm, you know, a safe person to teach the word and minister to you and all that. Here's my letters of uh, recommendation and all of that. And and they were saying about Paul, they were slandering him. They were saying he doesn't have those. Who Who's recommending him among the people that we respect? And he was saying, I don't need any of that stuff. And, and he talks about here, or do I need letters of commendation from you? I don't even, he goes, I don't need letters from you when I go to another city to be able to say that I'm legitimate because the Holy Spirit has you as my testimony. You are my epistle. The word epistle means letter. So you are my letter of commendation. You're the fruit of my ministry. You're the evidence that I'm legitimate because you know Christ. And if I wasn't a true apostle called to the Gentiles, you wouldn't know Christ right now. And so he's saying, this is what true ministry is. Verse 2, you are our epistle written on our, in our hearts. Notice how close they were to him. He says, you're written in our hearts. That's where you're written. You're written in our hearts, known and read by all men. So everybody can see that you're legitimate, that you're true believers, that you're a result of our ministry, and that your lives have been changed. Everybody can see that. Verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us. Now the word minister means serve. Okay, so he's saying clearly you are a letter of Christ served by us. See, these other teachers that were traveling around wanting these, showing these letters of commendation They were, many of them, false teachers who were wanting to be served and wanting the body of Christ to serve them and get rich off of the people of God. As we see, unfortunately, in so many different places in our culture, we see false teachers getting wealthy off the body of Christ. But he's saying, clearly, you are a letter of Christ, not a letter of Paul. Notice he says that. He says, a letter of Christ, not a letter of me or these other leaders. You're a letter of Christ. You're a result of Christ working in your life and then you're served by us. Isn't that a perfect picture what God's called us to do? A work, genuine work of the Spirit is always keeping Jesus at the center, pointing people to Jesus, being served by the human vessels that God has ordained to be in their lives. And that's us. So God's called us to serve people by pointing people to Christ so that what they become points to Jesus instead of points to us. Any man that points to himself, get away from that, that person as fast as possible. We're not looking to be lifted up. We're not looking for attention. We're not looking for anything. We're just servants of of, of the Lord, which is good enough. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. There's the work of the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit does the work. We're talking about having begun in the Spirit. Are you going to be made perfect in the flesh? We're talking about true works of the Spirit. True works of the Spirit 
are, are written by the Holy Spirit, the living God, not on tablets of stone like the law, law of Moses or the Ten Commandments, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And then look at verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. What does verse 4 mean? We have such trust through Christ toward God. See, Paul was saying that they trust the Lord to do the work in people. When you have a true work of the Holy Spirit, you, you recognize that it's far beyond anything you can bring to the table. You're just a messenger. You're just a vessel. And so you're there knowing that God's doing the work, and you're trusting God to do the work. See, maintaining a work of the Spirit is maintaining a trust in Christ to do the work. Once we stop trusting in Christ, we have to trust something, and normally, unfortunately, it's ourselves that we trust in. We're trusting that to continue the work and to bless the work when there's no life in us apart from Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So he says here, we have such trust through Christ toward God that he is doing the work, that you are the, the overflow of our ministries and Christ is writing you as an epistle and we're serving you in that and that these things are a result of the Spirit of God, the living God. Now notice in verse 5, he gets to the core of what he doesn't trust in. He says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. One of the keys to ministry is recognizing that the life that comes to people that changes them from the inside out doesn't have its origin in us. It has its origin in the Holy Spirit working through us. And it's a big difference between those things. There's books that I've seen. There's websites I've I've had people point me to that show me all the secrets and the tricks and, the, and all the, the keys to this and that to make these things happen. And there's no human mechanism by which those things work, at least in a way that pleases God. Outwardly, yes, they'll get numbers, they'll get money, they'll get all these things. But truly, what, what it really is at its core related to fruit, what's biblical fruit and what's a work of the flesh, is something that brings glory to Christ and that is a supernatural work. And he says, we are not sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. See, that's what happens when a work of the Spirit starts transferring or translating into a work of the flesh and starts to be something that man maintains and ultimately dies, is that it, there, there, there ceases to be a dependence upon God. Pastor Chuck used to say the difference between a rut and a grave is just distance <laughs> you know and we have to be careful of getting in our ruts and and we get in these habits and we get in these you know where this is just kind of how we do things and we're stopped being flexible we stop being open to God doing something new because we get comfortable going through the, the our, our our normal routine and it's not just churches it's our individual lives we, have to, you know, we sit in the same seats and I'm not criticizing you you guys are in this you're in your place it's good I'm in my place um, maybe I won't be. Maybe I'll move this over here someday. and I don't know. Um, but, I mean, we all have our rituals, and, all, and that's fine. We, there's things that are fine with those things not changing. But when we, I remember in school we had to study the life of a church and a life of a denomination and how things normally start off by the Spirit, full of life, full of dependence upon the Lord, and then over time things change. 
And the characteristics are you start becoming, instead of being outward, you start becoming inward. And it's true for our own personal lives. You stop praying. You stop, the expressions of dependence upon the Lord go away. You stop opening yourself up to different ways to reach people. You don't care about the culture. You don't care about lost people. It starts to become like a club. And all of a sudden you start aging and newer people aren't interested because you're not wanting to invest in understanding where their needs are at. So you start, stop reaching out to them and it's, you know, pretty soon you're aging and aging and there's no new ministries. There's, it's just this club. And before you know it, now you just, have, just, just count. It's like a clock to count down. When the last person dies in that church, that church will end. But it's dead way before that. Way before that. And they didn't even know it. And that's my nightmare as a pastor, is that we would be dead for years without even realizing that we're dead. And, and so we have to continue to be led by the Spirit. We have to continue to be outward and not inward. We have to continue to be about preaching the gospel. Dead churches don't preach the gospel. Dead churches aren't concerned about the lost. Dead churches are just about themselves and, and having a, you know, a club of people that have common interests and all of that. And, and they depend upon themselves. But Paul here says, our sufficiency is not from ourselves. But it's from, our sufficiency is from God. And notice in verse 6, he explains how it happens. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The law of Moses convicts us and condemns us and shows us that we can't make it to heaven on our own and we need a savior that was the purpose of the law all 613 laws in the law of Moses were designed to be a mirror to show us that we don't meet the standard that we need a savior it was never intended to be a means by which people receive salvation it's just a mirror and and so he's saying we have been we have been made sufficient as ministers, as servants. Not just talking about leaders there as ministers. A minister means servant. So he's saying that God has given us this sufficiency to be servants of this new covenant. Talking about this new thing that God was doing related to the son dying in our place and offering salvation as a free gift to us. He's given us that sufficiency. And each one of us is called to that ministry. Again, over time, we can stray. Over time, we can get more self-dependent. Over time, we can stop praying. Over time, all these things can start to happen. And before you know it, um, we're not in the middle of something that's alive. The truth is, our sufficiency will never stop being from God. No matter how much he uses us, we don't all of a sudden become sufficient in ourselves. I mean, look how God used the Apostle Paul. By this point, he'd already been on two missionary journeys. God has used him in such an amazing way. And he's saying, even after all of that, I mean, if anyone were tempted to be able to say that he's sufficient in himself, it would be Paul. But he doesn't say that. He says, you know, it's not in us. It's, it's from the Lord. And that will never stop. Now, the Galatian church, as I mentioned, they even thought their salvation could be approved on by human effort. And I want us to turn there. I want us to turn to Galatians chapter 3. I want to look at what they were in the middle of dealing with, because it does affect our ministries today. Galatians chapter 3. 
I always love these verses in chapter 3 because the very first time I taught the Bible was these verses. And, uh, man, it was a train wreck. We think this is bad. <laughs> you should have seen. That the, oh, man, I feel bad for those. And they were young people, but still, uh, even young people, have, they have resilience, but they, they should never have to deal with what I was dispensing. Uh, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> unbelievable. God's, God's gracious. I almost passed out. I was shaking. I was hot. I was dizzy. I was stuttering. It was, it was, it was no one that would ever think that I had the gift of teaching. They'd say, that's a dormant gift. <laughs> you know, um, don't see that yet. Um, Galatians chapter 3, I want to begin reading in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So this isn't talking about ministry. This is talking about salvation. Because what happened, they had these Judaizers, these, these it's debated whether or not they're believers or not, and maybe some were, some weren't, but they came in and were saying, okay, you're Gentiles and you need to obey the law of Moses now and be circumcised and all of these things, and if you don't do that, then you know, you're not a Christian and all these things. And so they were starting to relate to God on the basis of the things they could do by human effort to improve their, to improve their relationship with God instead of trusting in what Jesus did for them on the cross. And he says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You can't improve on that salvation. You can't add to the cross. And that's foundational. And yes, we're talking about ministry, and these were ta- they were talking about salvation, but it, it, they're connected. Because if you relate to God related to your salvation in a way that's works-based, you're going to relate to God related to ministry. In a, in a works-based way. And if you're, if you're not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, then you're not saved. Because salvation is a gift, and you only receive it as a gift, or you don't receive it. There's no hybrid version of grace and works. It's, it has to be all grace or all works. It can't be a combination. So he's saying, don't be foolish here. Don't, I mean, what did you lack? The Holy Spirit came into your life as a result of your faith in Christ. And he did miracles among you. You weren't doing works or trying to earn it or attain it back then. And he did all of that. How, how are you going to improve on those things? How are you going to improve on something that's as amazing as receiving the Holy Spirit into your life and having miracles be done in your midst? You can't improve upon that. So he's saying that that's completely foolish. In Acts chapter 15, at the council, it's what's called the Council of Jerusalem, the, the, the leadership met there trying to decide if they should make the Gentiles be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. And they came to a realization through different people sharing and, and, and people quoting scripture and all of that, basically saying that why would we put a yoke on these people that we nor our forefathers were able to bear? Peter said that. 
And, and so they, they wrote this letter and said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to, that, that you, you know, and he says, abstain from sexual morality and food sacrificed to idols and all these things that offended the, the Jewish believers that were there. He said, but basically, you're not going to improve on what you already have because that's what the apostles were saying. They were saying, they gave, the, God gave the Holy Spirit to them before we were done preaching the gospel. That's what Peter said. So God wasn't worried about their works. He gave them the Spirit. If he gave them the Spirit, then what can they do to improve upon that relationship? And, and so it's completely by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. I'd like us to turn to one more passage here. Revelation chapter 3. All the way to the last book of the Bible, all the way to your right. Revelation chapter 3, I want to begin reading in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard Hold fast and repent. This church in Sardis, they had this great reputation. (laughs) Um, Notice in verse 1, he says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. They have a name that they were alive. They had a reputation that they were alive. If you were to look at the church of Sardis on the outside you would come to the conclusion that they're as alive as any church you've ever seen. Because there was lots of activity. Lots of people coming and going. Lots of ministries. Lots of things happening. It's a happening place. You don't say that anymore, right? I'm just making sure I'm out of date there. It's a happening place. <laughs> um, and But no, everyone would think it's just activity, activity. The parking lot's full. There's all kinds of things happening. And people, especially church growth gurus... They think, oh, that's the ultimate measure of success. They would have looked at the church of Sardis and said, you shouldn't come to our seminars and you shouldn't, I shouldn't, you shouldn't come to me and let me overcharge you for these church growth teachings and all that that I have that I'm sending you all this junk mail about because you guys got it covered. You guys got the, all the activity. You got all the people coming and going and all of that. Everybody would have came to the conclusion that they were alive but, and even themselves would come to that conclusion But God had a different one. Jesus had a whole nother assessment of that church. And he says, you are dead. What a nightmare. To think about Jesus having that assessment of us when we and everybody around us thinks that we're alive. How does that happen? Did the church of Sardis, did Calvary Chapel Sardis, did they they start out in the spirit? Yes. You can't start out as a church, a real church, unless you're starting out in the Spirit. Did they start out dependent upon the Lord? Yes. Were there works of the Spirit? Were they dependent upon God? Were they outward instead of inward? Were all these things? Did they lift up Jesus' name? Yes, all these things. What happened? Over time, they started to be inward. There started to be self-dependence. There start, there, all these things started creeping in. It happens in, incrementally over time. And again, all the outward things continue, can continue to be there, 
that fools everybody, including yourself, in thinking that it's alive. But Jesus says it's dead. And, and isn't it true that Jesus' opinion is the only one that matters? This is all for him, not for us. And he's the head of the church. So he gets a say about how the church should function. I would hope so. I mean, man, man if you were the head of the, your, a church, wouldn't you want to have a say in what it should be about? And, and so these leaders that come up with the, all these theories and all these books and we're going to yank the congregation over here and do now we're about this for a while and now we're about that for a while and now we're into this fad and oh wait that was yeah we were we were tricked on that you know what we we asked for for forgiveness and now we're involved in this fad like we've been spared all of that for decades and decades and decades because we've just stuck with this we got criticized for not doing the 40 days of purpose with Rick Warren. I'm not saying it was a bad thing, but we just we were into this. And we got criticized for that. I mean, I'm not I don't just saying our church because it was before our church, I believe. Yeah. But it was other other Calvary chapels and other churches that criticized. What do you mean you're not doing the 40 days of purpose? <laughs> we're just not. We're just going through the scriptures. It's okay. You'll be all right. Go ahead and do your 40 days. That's okay. That's great. God bless you. We're just going to do this because there's so many different things out there that people could get into, and we have to be careful. Now, notice he says in verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain because it wasn't all that way. There were still some things that were of the Spirit that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. In verse 3, it says something very important. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. So he tells them, hold fast, pay attention, and repent. But notice, this is very important. Remember. See, there was, they could remember the, how they received because they had once received the way that he wanted them to receive. How was that? How did they receive in the way that they should have? He says, how you've received and heard. And I believe it has everything to do with um, receiving in a dependent way they received and heard dependently trusting God not trusting themselves and as a result of that God worked in their midst legitimate fruit was produced and people came to Christ people were served disciples were made but after a while they stopped hearing and receiving dependently on him and, and that started this chain of events where they eventually became dead. And so that's the lesson. And he, he links it to overcoming, as he does all the churches in Revelation. Notice in verse 5, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. See, overcoming is important. It's not just making to the finish line. It's overcoming in a biblical way. In other words, I'm arriving at the finish line dependent upon God. I'm, I'm a, a, um, arriving at the finish line with faith in him, with dependence upon him, where he's working through my life. I'm not trusting in myself. I am outward and not inward, all these things. That's when we've actually finished our race well because we've finished it in a biblical way not just getting to the end. There's a difference between overcoming and getting to the end. Well, if I ran a marathon, I wouldn't overcome that marathon. I would get to the end. Hopefully, I mean, I can get to the end. Probably right now I wouldn't get to the end for sure. But my goal, I just got to get to the end. 
But someone that overcomes is overcome victor- is overcoming that victoriously. They're finishing well. He hasn't called us just to finish. He's called us to finish well. And the only way that that can happen is if we do it dependently. Receive and hear dependently. Trust in him to do the work. Pastor Chuck used to always talk to us so many times about letting God do the work. To get out of his way and let him directly do the work and to be dependent upon him. And you know what? That process is messy sometimes. Things aren't always organized well. People make mistakes. Things aren't done flawlessly and perfectly. Things go wrong. It's okay. That's a picture of the Christian life. We do things not perfectly. We fall short. We make mistakes. That's how we grow. We can't have an environment where people can't make mistakes here. I remember some of the guys when they first started doing announcements years ago, they'd make a mistake and feel like the worst thing in the world's happened. I'm like, do you realize that you could mess up far greater than the announcements, first of all? But number two is that I make mistakes all the time. I'll forget communion or I'll. We have to have an environment where mistakes are, it's okay for people to make mistakes. Because if, if we don't, then we, can't, we won't keep going in that direction and trusting God for him to improve us and grow and stretch us and all these things. So it has to be that gracious environment, but it has to be an environment where we're encouraging others to depend upon God. If you boil down how to minister to somebody, and there's many times I'm way over my head, I don't know what to say. All the, you're not the only one who doesn't know what to say. <laughs> and, and, you, and I just think, God, help me to point them to you. How do I point them to you? And, and that's the key, is for us to point people to him, to point ourselves to him, to trust in him to do the work, and to let him have the freedom to work how he wants to work, which might go against our preferences. It might go against how we would prefer things to go. That happens all the time for me. There's things that don't happen the way I think they should go. But this is how he's leading, and I see that it's best. Or I, one day I will see that it was best. I'll see the wisdom. I may not see it now. But I will see it someday. I want to read to you one last uh, verse from Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, which says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. God wants us to finish well. Pastor Chuck used to talk about that all the time, to finish well. Anybody can start something well. It's entirely something different for you to finish well well to be faithful all the way to the end of what that calling or that thing that that God's called you to and and it's easy to start things it's it's a whole nother thing entirely to finish things well and he's called us to do that but if we don't start recognizing that we have to be just as dependent on things now even if we've been doing them for years as we were in the very beginning there was a story of a, of a lady that was in the front row of a guy who came up, this new pastor, and he was, he came, he was horrified, and he was scared and shuddering and all of that, and he preached his sermon, and, it, and it, um, he, went, he got down when he was done, and, and everything was just, it just failed completely, and he thought he had done a great job, and the lady said, if you would have went down from that stage how you went up, you would have done a lot better. You know, just totally dependent upon the Lord in, in every single instance and it's so easy for us when we you know at first we step out in faith and we're doing something let's say we're a greeter and we're horrified and I don't know what to say I don't know how to greet people all that and we trust the Lord we make sure we have our devotions that day 
all of that, and then we get a little bit more comfortable, and we start doing it a little bit better, and before you know it, you know, months, years can go by. We're not dependent upon him at all. We're not led by the Spirit at all. We're just going through the motions, and it's like on, we're on autopilot. That isn't, that isn't what God's called us to be. He's called us to be dependent upon him, and if we've done something a thousand times, to be just as dependent right now as we were when we first started, because in reality, we truly are just as much dependent upon him, even though we've done it a thousand times. That's the reality. So that's what God's called each of us to remember. It's something that we hold dear in Calvary Chapel, to not just begin in the Spirit, but to finish in the Spirit, to remain yielded to the Holy Spirit, to remain dependent upon him, to have his life be living through our lives after years and years and years of doing something and being willing for him to change things up and be flexible and have him have us do things in a way that might be different than we're uh, accustomed to. Let's pray together.